I'm, I think <clears throat> it won't be hard for many of you to guess that I'm, I'm actually a real geek at heart. And one of the things I love to do, um, this will really cement it for you, is like one of the favorite things I love to do is go out to White Rock Lake and go on a long jog listening to philosophy lectures. I'm, I'm like, I'm in hog heaven when that happens. And I was thinking about that this week. I did one on 4th of July. I did a long run. And I was listening to this one philosophy lecture that, that got into um, naturalistic pragmatism of these philosophers and all this. But part of it, not to get lost in all this geeky stuff, but the, the part of the essence of this is to say this pragmatism and this one part of philosophy, they kind of get down into when people get into philosophical debates and things, they'd say, they kind of ask, how does it matter to us here today? Because like, if there's no real outcome difference, they're kind of like, let's just walk past that one because it's not, it just doesn't matter. And I really want to come up with a corollary to that in theology, that there's a pragmatic aspect of theology that we can debate all kinds of theological things, but if they don't really affect how we live or who we are, or what we're about, does it really matter? I want to suggest the stuff we're talking about today is one of those things like above everything else we could ever talk about really matters, like really, really, really matters. So I want to dig down on some of it today. And um, let me just say that what we're doing today is part of this sermon series we've been doing where we're, we are, and you heard the longer than usual reading today, we're going through every single word of the book of Galatians. And today we did chapter four. We've got two more chapters to go, two more weeks to go. But we're walking through this book, and um, we're going to continue to do that, as I said, two more weeks. But here's where I'm going to go today. I'd like to give just a little bit of context for the book, the passage we're reading today. And I want to look at mainly the arguments that Paul makes at the center of the letter that are going to take us in part into this, some of the most important theological stuff that there is in the Bible. And then we'll, we'll kind of go on from, from there. So a little bit of background. Um, some of you have been with us the whole time. Some of you, it's your first time in here since we've been looking at Galatians. All the stuff is on our media center if you want to go back and look at any of the old ones. But I'm going to go with Raymond Brown, one of my favorite scholars, who says this is a book written by Paul in the year 54, 55 from Macedonia to the churches in Galatia. And he's writing with a real problem with a lot of... Um, vigor because he's the one who established the churches there. He preached the gospel. They responded, formed the churches, did all this. And now there's a group of Christians from Jerusalem who've come and they've said, Paul didn't get it all right. He gave what he got you was okay, but he didn't give you the rest of it. You guys should be living under the law. Circumcision, all these different bits of what it means to live out the law. You've missed all that. That's why y'all are kind of struggling with sin. It's kind of what, what they're saying. And Paul is more than any other letter he wrote, he is worked up. He has a lot of energy. And, uh, and you're going to see that. You're going to see that even today on a, sort of a couple different levels. Um, and that's what this letter is ultimately about. And since we're kind of rounding the corner now, we're into the home stretch. We've only got two more weeks. They're going to kind of be some cleanup in a way. I want to pause just to kind of give you a, a bit of a review and an overview of the whole thing, like the super 20,000 foot level kind of thing. We started this book, um, just kind of a quick review, chapter one, verse one through five, was just this formula of how they write letters, this opening formula. Then verses six through 10 was this introduction. And then you got over um, to verse 111 all the way through 221 was what's called an apologia. It's Paul kind of taking on a courtroom situation where he is the one being accused. He's the defendant. 
the Galatians are the jury, and these people who came from Jerusalem are the accusers. And he kind of works through that. Then we pick up last week and this week with chapters 3 and 4, where Paul makes six different arguments about why these guys are wrong. And when I first read this, the lawyers in the room will, will relate to this, but whenever you get a, a baby lawyer and you have them go write their first motion, they'll, if they see 10 issues, they'll come back arguing 10 issues. And you're like, yeah, no, pick the best three and let's, let's do this thing over again. But I think Paul today does six different arguments. And I don't think it's because he's doing that. I just think he has so much vigor for how wrong these guys are who came from Jerusalem that he's just, he's just putting it all out there. And I'm convinced he probably held back the, the five that were a little bit weaker. But he really wants to go there. That's what happens in three and four. And then the final two bits <clears throat> that we're going to do in the last two weeks is this chapter five, which is an exhortation where we're going to get the works of the flesh and the fruit of the spirit and all these beautiful passages. Some of you, you'll, you'll know and then we finally get the conclusion to the letter itself. That's where we're going the last two weeks. Today, what I want to do, though, is focus in on these six arguments. Very, very briefly on the first three, and then I want to focus in on the final three, which are really from our chapter. Last week, Eric preached. I did listen to it. He picked one thread out of chapter three, really super important one, and developed it. I want to just tell you <clears throat> excuse me, about the other three arguments that are there, and then pick up with chapter four, right? So if you go back and look at chapter 3, these are the arguments. <clears throat> the very first one, let me grab my water real fast. Um, the very first argument he makes is chapter 3, verse 1 to 5. And kind of what Paul says is this. He says, look, I came to you guys. I preached Christ crucified. You guys received it, and you received the Holy Spirit when you did. Why do you need the law? Why do you need all this stuff they're coming to talk about? Because you heard it, you received it, and God blessed you and gave you the Holy Spirit. Why are we, ta why are we worried about this? It's all happened. <clears throat> and I th there's a whole sermon here. I would love to go down this path. Like, Paul is inherently saying, you can see that the Holy Spirit arrived amongst you and in you. And for us who are on this journey where we commit and follow Christ, I think it raises a question to us, do we see the Holy Spirit in us? individually and collectively as a body. Because Paul certainly thought that was part of it. But that's a whole other sermon. We'll go back there maybe at Pentecost. The second um, argument that he makes um, in chapter 3 is verse 6 through 14. And, and kind of the argument that he makes is like this, that um, God comes to Abraham and tells Abraham that the whole world is going to be blessed through you. And Paul wants to say, there was nothing in that promise that had anything to do with the law. It was a promise given. It's a promise being fulfilled. It was independent of the law. There's a lot more we could say on that. But that's the second argument that he makes. And then continuing on, um, the final sort of stretch or part of the final stretch uh, in chapter 3, he picks up at verse 15 and goes to 25. And he says, when you have a will that's been fully ratified, um, Somebody comes along later, much later, and tries to add on something to it. It doesn't annul the will. And he said, what he's saying is, look, this promise was made to Abraham. The law really doesn't come along until 430 years later. It doesn't change the original promise the way it was. So why are you all worried about this? That's, that's kind of what his third argument is. And then the fourth argument now, we get into what's going to start carrying into the passage that we just read. Um, and this fourth argument, um, it picks up. 
you know, we're, we're right in chapter 3 at verse 26. It's going to go all the way to 411. To me, this is the one of all the six I would hold on to the most. But Paul is telling the Galatians, and he, he, I love the way he's such a pastor because he tells them, like, he, he uses us, includes himself with the Gentiles, even though he's got this great pedigree of being a, a Jew among Jews. He says, the thing about us is that we were under these elemental spirits of the universe. We were slaves to all this stuff. And then we found redemption in Jesus Christ um, by adoption as God's children. And now you're the, you're, the, you're the sons and daughters of God with all these rights and all these things that come in that with, as, a, as a child. Why in the world do you want to go back and become a slave again? That's the essence of what he's saying in this piece. And he says in it that the law was really just something to sort of be the custodian, to carry people along until this new era arrived when Jesus presented this, and now it's all about grace. And Paul's going to kind of keep carrying on this theme for a bit, because with a Roman adoption, you had to have a witness. And Paul's saying, as he goes on, um, he has this uh, passage where he talks about how the Holy Spirit is the witness. It's the Holy Spirit in us that allows us to cry out, Abba, Father, and all of this. It's the Holy Spirit that does that. that that's the witness. We're adopted. And I think there's nothing more powerful in all of Christianity than this, that in Christ we are adopted as sons and daughters, that we're princes and princesses, however you want to look at it. We're children of God, not by anything we earn, but by the fact that God reaches out to us and adopts us, and we just receive it. And I think every single Sunday when we gather, and really every single day that we live, is about celebrating that grace. And it's so anti-American because we're go-getters. We're going to earn it. We're going to do it ourselves and all this. It's just grace. And there's so much power in that. It's so, it's so life-changing, particularly for, the, for when we screw things up. There's so much power in just saying, okay, it's about grace, okay? I can receive his forgiveness and go on. Because, we, again, we want to make it like we're somehow can figure out how to be perfect. It's all about grace. So everything about the Christian journey is celebrating this grace. But the other part of it is... That we're about sharing that grace. I think we celebrate it, but we leave this place as go and love and serve the Lord. When we say go love and serve the Lord, the biggest piece of that is to go out of these walls and share grace. Grace of telling where we found it. Grace of how we're loved. Grace is not what we do. Grace in our relationships. All the different ways that we practice grace. And this goes back to how I started talking about this uh, practical or pragmatic philosophy kind of stuff. When it comes to theology, I think it matters in how you live. You're going to live a better life, a fuller life, a richer life if you practice grace. I had, I had a beer this week with a friend of mine who's living in, just moved to Denver two months ago on a project, and he's telling me about how lonely he is. And I know that his best friend for many years, or one of his best friends, lives in Denver, and he had a falling out with her about a year ago because she did something, and he just won't forgive her. He just keeps her. And I'm like, okay, you're lonely. You're in this town, and that's where she lives. I told him, I, I was telling him the same stuff. I said, why don't give her some grace? I don't care if she actually did wrong you. If you just practice forgiving her, letting go, give her some grace, you're going to be happier. She's going to be happier. Everyone's going to be happier. It's going to be a better place. It's going to practically matter. And I think gra practicing grace 
We may find it really hard because we think we want to hold on to our injustice. But the more we practice grace, I think the more we receive. And the more we're blessed and the more we receive in all kinds of different ways. I want to uh, tell a story. Um, I lived in London for a year. I sometimes, another geeky thing I do, I like reading some of the sermons that other people have written, particularly ancient ones. One of the guys in the last 300 years considered to be one of the best preachers in the church was a guy who had a church in London named Charles Spurgeon. And um, apparently there was another preacher there who was almost as good, although I haven't read any of his stuff yet, a guy named Joseph Parker. And they had the two biggest Protestant churches in London at the time, back in the 1800s. And um, the story goes that on this particular day, this guy named Joseph Parker got up into his pulpit. Whenever he was preaching, he made the comment that Charles Spurgeon, the other preacher, that his, the children entering Spurgeon's orphanage, because he had an orphanage that his church ran, were not in very good condition. That was what he said. When it got delivered over to Charles Spurgeon, it got delivered as Joseph Parker said, your orphanage is not in good condition. So then the next week, all leaders are broken, right, at some level. Spurgeon gets in his pulpit and blasts Joseph Parker. And so much so that I guess the media was there. They didn't have TV, right? So the newspaper carries this story about how he blasted Joseph Parker and all this other kinds of stuff. And then so the next week at Joseph Parker's church, it's extra full because everybody's come to see how he's going to respond. He doesn't say anything in his sermon proper, but when it came time for the offering, he says, I understand Charles Spurgeon's not at his pulpit today. I know this is the Sunday when they normally make an extra offering to support his orphanage. Today, we're going to do an extra offering for his orphanage. And apparently, this accounts that were written up, you know, it was this ginormous, people were incredibly generous, they took all this money. So during the week, he gets a knock on his door, um, Joseph Parker does, and it's Spurgeon. And Spurgeon comes in and says to him, you practice grace. You didn't give me what I deserved. You gave me what I needed. And that's the end of the story as I've read it. But I wonder how much richer their relationship was after that. They could have been two angry preachers not living the gospel, or they could experience grace and grow together. I think again and again and again, the more we practice grace, we receive. And the more, you know, it's more blessed to give than receive. It's the same kind of thing, I think, on grace. Right? But that's a cornerstone of everything that we do, right? So anyway, I think it's easy for us to slip back into it, into becoming legalistic, holding on to our rights and our justices and all this stuff and not practicing grace. That is the fourth argument that he makes is his point about how we're, ad we're adopted. Hold on to that. Don't go back to being a slave. Hold on to the freedom that you have by grace, right? The fifth argument is a little bit, it's a little bit different. If you were reading your Bible, the heading on it might say Paul's plea, but in ancient rhetoric, they would do logic, of course, but they would also make emotional pleas or expressions. And Paul does both of those in this fifth argument. Paul, the logic part of it is he comes to them. And if you know Paul, the reason he came originally to Galatia was because he was ill. And when he was ill, they treated him like an angel, is what our passage said today. And Paul is saying, look, how can you treat me like an angel before and now you're going to treat me like an enemy because these people from Jerusalem came? Like, that doesn't, that doesn't really make sense. That's the logic piece. And then the second part of it was this emotional appeal that went with it, where Paul is saying, like, I'm just going to read one, one verse with it. He says in, in verse 20, I wish I were present with you now 
and could change my tone. Like, and St. Um, John Chrysostom, the greatest preacher the church maybe knew back in the 5th century, is saying, look, Paul wishes he was there so they could hear the anguish in his voice, so they could hear his mournful cries, so they could see his tears. You know, Paul is angry. He's, he's giving them this letter that's really reprimanding them, but he doesn't want them to lose that he loves them. And that's what he stops to make this appeal. Like, you don't know how much I love you and how, much, how he's appealing on that. That's his, part of his fifth argument. The, the final argument may have gone like, you may have already been, your eyes may have been glassed over by the time you got to, the, to this part of the long reading. But he comes back to this passage in Genesis, if you remember how this goes, that involves Sarah and Hagar. And, and it's all going to be an allegorical interpretation. But do you remember the underlying story that God came to Abraham and promised him he was going to bless all these nations his ancestors were going to be like the stars, and, it, and he was going to give birth with Sarah. And this went on for a long time, and they're all old, and they're like, you know, do we misunderstand something? What's going on with this? And then according to sort of the custom of the day, eventually Sarah kind of gives up on that and sends over her chambermaid or whatever to Abraham and says, okay, well, this must be what it meant. And so Abraham reproduces by the flesh, and Hagar has the child Ishmael. And there's all, all that that goes on. And then eventually Sarah does get pregnant and has Isaac, according to the promise and all this. And, and then that's where the lineage goes and the rest of the story goes on from there. That's the factual piece of it. But now we're talking about the allegorical interpretation of it. And what Paul wants to say is, look, hey, and, and the reason Paul's doing this, you know, there are lots of reasons we might think about it. Genesis is considered part of the law, but probably the Judaizers, the people coming from Jerusalem had argued it is what people think. So now Paul is going to say, yeah, great story. That's a great story. It's from the law. It's included in the law. And those guys just misinterpreted it. It's a great story. Let me tell you what it really means. And he says, look, look at Hagar. She is under, um, she's the one who is under the law. She's, she's a slave in this story. She represents the old covenant, which was formed in Mount Sinai, which is in Arabia, which is where all her descendants are now. They're under the law, and she's a slave. And you know what? Her children born to a slave, child born to a slave is a slave. That's where they all are. And that's what the old law is. And so these people from Jerusalem now, are that's what they are. If you want to be that, you're under the law, you're a slave. But he's saying, look, and not only that, and there's one more thing he says, which may, which may slide over us. She's born by the flesh. Because in contrast, Sarah is like a miracle, right? She's super old. This is way before IVF. And donor eggs and all the other stuff. She, so she's born by the promise. He's really saying she's born by the spirit. She's born by supernatural, God's intervening kind of stuff. And the children, Isaac and those born of her, are free and have all these rights and have all this other stuff. That's what it is to be born by God and the spirit. So that's the proper analogy. And then he puts a little zinger in here. We could spend more time to end with, but he... He kind of says, you know, and if, I didn't say this earlier in the story, but if you remember how this goes, Ishmael, the child of Hagar, eventually starts persecuting Isaac. And eventually Sarah has to come to Abraham and say, okay, you have got to send Hagar and Ishmael away. And he does. And they're put out and they go. And he's kind of saying those people coming, trying to put you back under the law, are going to be sent away. Because that's not part of this picture anymore. It's all about... God's grace, don't go back there. Those are the six arguments. Um, you can see which one you think. I think at the end of the day, 
we have to always celebrate and hold on to grace. It's everything, I think, in our journey. It's how we're here. It's how God loves us. It's how God reaches out. And our job is to celebrate it and to share it each day. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we thank you that you love us and that you have extended this gift to us we don't deserve. Help us receive it fully and to share it in love for the world. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.